0: Hi, my name, my name is Jorge Valdez, hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Our reading is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11, verse 15, 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple, and began to dry out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers, and his seats of the those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, and he and saying to them, "It is no right written." My house shall be called a house of prayer of the old nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes hear it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they fear him, because all the crow was astonished at his teaching, and when Evening came, they went out of the city. Sisfi family, the war of the Lord. the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. A little earlier, good
1: morning than we've had. Anybody a little groggy? Raise your hand if you're still feeling that hour. I know I am. Our dog this morning, I usually walk our dog before church. He looked at me like you've got to be kidding me. you join me in prayer? Dear God, we do offer you this morning and thank you that you've already been at work and that your mercy is already new, that we are stepping into worship and learning about you and the path of millions of people who've already done that today around the world. We, like them, like our brothers and sisters, come and ask you to guide us and instruct us and to meet us where we are. You know alone all our hearts and our needs and the joys and sorrows we carry this morning. And so we present ourselves to you and ask for your help in your name. Amen. Amen. If you're a guest, uh, my name is Dean Miller and I'm one of the staff here. And again, we are super glad you're here with us. We are in the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Mark 11, which you heard Jorge just read from. Uh, This is a really fun and interesting chapter. And so this morning, what I want to do is talk about temples and Sanhedrin. Okay, temples and Sanhedrin. So keep those as sort of your framework for what we're about to look at. And then I also want you to think for a second about something you do that you know is great, that you feel super good about. It could be a tradition, could be a habit. Like how many of you have uh, a special red birthday plate that everybody gets to use on your, on a birthday? Lots of folks grew up with that, right? Or... Think about maybe a Christmas tradition. Oh, we do this with stockings, or we do this. Or at a birthday, maybe you go around and affirm the person whose birthday it is. But something that means something to you at your work. Some people, maybe at work, someone has is there for a year, or three years, or five years, and they get a great lunch or something. But something you do in a community that you feel great about, okay, and you're convinced is super healthy. Okay, everybody think about it. Everybody have something? Okay, we're gonna come back to that. But just hold on to what that is, okay? Again, we're in week three of this Lenten series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to chapter 11. Mark, we believe, is Peter's gospel, that Peter has shared with Mark what his experience was like following Jesus. This is the earliest gospel account we have written, and we believe that, that this account is really Peter's account. And One of the things, if you read even just the, the chapters we've been looking at, really from chapter 8 through 16, is how action-packed it was for Peter. And one of the marks of that is he uses this word over and over again immediately, immediately, immediately. If you're reading along in the daily passages we're in, begin to note that. Some of you might want to go back. If you're here this morning and you go back and you can find out for me how many times the word immediately is used, I will buy you a $5 Starbucks card. You can come up to me next week or a couple weeks and be like, hey, it's this many times. But a hint is that it's used more times in Mark than in the entire Old Testament. The Gospel of Mark uses the word immediately more times in the entire Old Testament. Because for Peter, that's what it was like to follow Jesus. And then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and my life got turned on its head. We again are in the back half, chapters 9 to 16, and in these sets of chapters, Jesus is racing to the cross. It really started in chapter 8 when Peter said, I believe you're the Messiah, the Christ who has come, and you feel this Epic shift in how Jesus is interacting with the disciples. He begins to teach them about how they're going to need to die to self and how the the Messiah is going to come and be sacrificed, crucified on a cross. And boom, they make a turn from Galilee toward Jerusalem. Mark is broadly organized into three acts. And the last act is where we are now, chapters 11 to 16. We're going to be in these chapters through Easter. All the action in these chapters takes place in Jerusalem and during Holy Week. And it's gonna finish, with, as you know, many of you, with the cross and Jesus' resurrection. That means that fully 40% of the book is on this one week of Jesus' life. That's a lot, right? 33 years of his life focused on one week of his life, which means it must have been super important to Peter because it was super important that week to his life. And the theme of chapters 11 to 13, which will be in the next few weeks, is Jesus' rejection of the temple and religious institution and leadership in Jerusalem and of Israel, and then the conflict in that rejection with the leaders he meets in Jerusalem. Now, the act begins with, I would say, sort of a bridge from chapter 10. If you have your Bible, you'll see the last paragraph in chapter 10. Jesus and the disciples are actually in Jericho, And they're leaving Jericho to head to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this blind man, Bartimaeus, cries out, Son of David, Son of David, save me. Heal me. And Jesus stops, turns, and heals Bartimaeus. And that's sort of this prophetic arc. Bartimaeus has told us something. This blind man who can't see is telling those of us who can see, guess who this is? This is the Messiah. And if you step back and think about what it would be like as an Israelite to hear that, you'd think, well, gosh, if he's the Messiah... And it's Passover. What should he do? He should go to Jerusalem. And we should have a party. Frankly, it should be a parade. We should get some some horses and some donkeys. And it's like the king's coming to town and we should maybe lay garments on the ground. And that's what's happening as you begin chapter 11, what we often call the triumphal entry, which we'll cover on Palm Sunday. But the king is coming to Jerusalem. The son of David. Well, of course he is. That's what should happen. And if he gets to Jerusalem, where should he go? Where would you go if you're the king? You'd probably go to the temple, right? Because that's what meant the most to the Israelite kingdom. Hey, here's the king from Jericho. This blind guy gave this prophetic word. He's traveled. We've had this party outside the city. He's going to come into the temple. Holy smoke, I wonder what could happen. And if you read the first paragraph in chapter 11, you'll read he does go to the temple, and nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing. He comes, he looks around. There's no coronation. The celebration outside the city is done. That hasn't carried into the inner courts of the temple. Jesus leaves. He goes back out to Bethany a couple miles away to sleep, probably at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's weird. And it's a bit of a clue, like something's not right in Jerusalem. Something's not right in Israel. This is the son of David. He's coming. Nobody's done anything about it. There are all these messianic clues. He's supposed to come in on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9. He's healing the blind. That's lots of places in the Old Testament. Not just crickets, nothing, but one scholar says Jesus is met by indifference and then opposition and then condemnation and then death. And that's what's gonna happen the next several chapters. After this entrance, we're met with five major what are called controversy narratives. There are gonna be five experiences of Jesus in direct controversy with the leaders in Israel. They actually mirror five major controversy narratives way back in Mark two and three. So there's this structure. Early on in his ministry he's getting opposition and here at the end he's getting opposition. There's rising tension and anger between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And you get this sense that bad things are coming. How many of you have seen The Banshees of Ashiran, the movie up for Oscars, a bunch of Oscars tonight? In that movie, there's rising tension and anger and you feel like, ooh, bad things are gonna happen and do. And all this controversy in chapters 11 to 13 goes just not just from Jerusalem but actually in the temple. Those chapters are really in the temple. And if you remember the temple from our series in Kings, let's refresh our memory, what's going on? The temple now is rebuilt. It's not the temple that was destroyed at the end of Kings. It's not the temple of the exile. It's been rebuilt. It's actually been purified. It was desecrated in the 160s BC and a group rose up and took it back and purified it and established its own inner rule from Israel, which Rome has honored. And it's being restored now by Herod. It's actually a couple decades into restoration and there's gonna be a couple more decades of it being restored. It's gonna look amazing. And if you're an Israelite, you're feeling like, It's pretty great. Look at our temple. Look at all the money Herod's putting in to this. Oh, he's doing it to buy us off. But nevertheless, look at our temple. looks great. It's the central part of Israel's life. Worship God at the center of the temple and the center of Holy Holies. That's where Israel is grounded in this whole sacrificial system and the relationships around the feasts. Where the temple was, God was. And through that temple... And Israel, God is seeking to communicate his love for the world. So if you think about at that time, where's the focal point, the point of the spear of God's love for the world? It's in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple in Israel, where Jesus is. Here's the son of David in this temple, bringing God's love, his father's love to the world, and he's going to poke the religious tigers of Israel. How do you think that's going to go? Not great. So there's two things I want to focus on. Remember I said temples and Sanhedrin. First, there is controversy in and over the temple. We see it in all these 11, 12, and 13, but particularly here in chapter 11. Jesus goes back the second day from Bethany. He rises, he gets awake, and they go into the city with the disciples, and he enters the court of the Gentiles. And there are four major sections to the temple. There's a court of the Gentiles. It's about 500 square yards. Then there's the court for women. Then there's the court of Israel, which is only for circumcised males in Israel. And then there's the Holy of Holies, which the high priest can go in one time a year. So he's at the outermost, the biggest, broadest court. And all of these places in the temple are supposed to be places of prayer and reflection, as you heard from Jorge reading. The temple is supposed to be a place of prayer. And you'd think then it would be kind of a quieter place, a set-apart place where people can come and interact with God. But as you read, you see, well, gosh, it's not quiet at all. It's loud. It's messy. It's sort of the mall. It's like Tyson's got placed in the outer court of the Gentiles. The only place Gentiles can go in the entire temple There's this whole sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system is important and needed and good. You're supposed to purchase doves, pigeons, goats, lamb, what you can afford to bring to Passover for the priest to offer sacrifices and give thanks to God and for your forgiveness every year. So you need to be able to buy sacrifices, animals for sacrifice. But selling them in this outer court is apparently kind of a new thing. Maybe even as new as 30 A.D., which would be about three years before Jesus is there. Which would also mean Jesus grew up going to the temple with his parents and the sacrifices, the animals, not being for sale in that court. These used to be sold in the Mount of Olives and on other streets in Jerusalem, but not in the outer courts. But it's just in the last few years that there's been some arrangement where now you and I can buy doves, pigeons, goats, and lambs right here in the court of the Gentiles. So it's messy, It's an affront. It pushes the Gentiles sort of out. It takes away their opportunity to be in God's presence in the temple. And there's some sense that the rates for those animals have become extortionate and the priestly caste is probably getting a little scratch on the side. So if you think about the $8 hot dog you buy at Nationals Park, that's what's happening, right? And it may be the greatest hot dog ever, but you're like, eight bucks? Really? I can't fly or walk on water after this hot dog? Why is it so expensive? Same thing, you're being, oh, you're being ripped off to come into God's presence. So Jesus comes and he's angry because he's on mission to communicate God's world to the people and here's the only court where our Gentiles can come and everybody's supposed to buy sacrifices and it's a mess. It's preventing the court being a place of prayer. It's also an affront to who he is as the Messiah. One of the popular understandings of the Messiah then was he's going to come in and purge Jerusalem and the temple purge the temple of gentiles and aliens and foreigners take that courtyard and clean it out of all the people we don't like and instead one scholar says Jesus is doing exactly the reverse he does not clear the temple of gentiles but he's clearing it for gentiles he's interrupting the entire sacrificial system of the temple to enhance the position of Gentiles in the temple. Now, if, you, if you're an alien and you came down from out of space and you were here in Jerusalem for these days and you saw the temple and the mess and you heard Jesus' anger, I mean, he's, he's driving people out. It's disruptive. He's angry. He's turning stuff over, spilling money. If you were an alien, you might, you might have the distance to understand what Jesus is really saying. That this is a sign. It's not a sign of, oh, shoot, move the money out to the outer court and sell it on the Mount of Olives. It's a sign that the entire setup of Israel in the temple is sick. Like, utterly sick. It might look good on the outside with Herod's contractors and bricklayers. Look at all we got going on. Got at the crown molding. At the gold laminate here. And your bustling animal sales. Ooh, we got all kinds of sales. But it's still sick. It's sick like the fig tree, which are the two paragraphs that bracket this paragraph, where Jesus comes upon the fig tree that looks awesome. Fig trees could be anywhere from 10 to 30 feet tall, looked beautiful in bloom, but it was sick. It had no fruit. It had bloomed way too early, about three months too early, and had nothing to feed anybody. So it looked great, but had no fruit. Guess what the temple is? It looks great but it has no fruit. The earliest commentary we have on Mark is from the 5th century. A guy named Victor of Antioch. What a great name. And even then, they knew. This is an enacted parable. The fig tree is Jesus living out the judgment that's gonna come on the sick temple system in Israel. So he drives these animals out and the people out, and he cleanses a bit. It's probably not as accurate to say he cleanses the court. He does, but they probably return to the same sort of setup the rest of Passover. It's not like the text says, and then they never came back. But he's actually not interested in just cleansing the court. What he is saying, more importantly, is I have not come to clean the temple. I have come to condemn the temple. I have not come to clean the temple. I have come to set up an entirely new way for you and I to meet with God. There will be no more courts. There will be just me on the cross and then out of the tomb. To use a Northern Virginia context, this is not a renovation. This is a tear down. What is supposed to be the center of worship for the entire world, where you and I should utterly know God's love and go share it with others, the love Jesus' Father has for Jew and Gentile is profane and sick and will be destroyed. Can you see why the religious leaders might be so angry? Think again of that tradition, that habit, that thing you do for birthdays or at work or Christmas, and you think it's super healthy. And somebody comes to you and says, actually, that's utterly unhealthy. Not only should you change it, you should never do it again. That's what's happening in this chapter. This is a scholar named Ben Witherington. The very heart of Israel is being called into question. And the very presence of God in their midst is at stake. Temple worship could no longer go on with any divine imprimatur or stamp of the presence of God. If Jesus, if God was rejected, they couldn't call the temple where God met because they would have rejected God. Mark seems to be saying that Jesus brought an end to the validity of the temple and its ritual as the means of reconciliation and meeting between God and humanity. So the worship has to be overturned. It has to die and resurrect. Not of or at the temple in Jerusalem, but in Jesus. Now this is consistent teaching, right? Jesus has been saying since chapter 8, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die and take up your cross. And all he's saying to Israel is, guess what? The temple has to die too. What do we celebrate in baptism? You die with Christ, and you rise in Christ. That's all Jesus is saying. But if you have any questions about whether life with Jesus does involve us surrendering and having things die that being brought back to deeper, richer, and better, it's right here again to an entire temple situation and institution. This is revolution. N.T. Wright says Jesus is inviting his hearers to join him in the establishment of the true temple. Now, this is where it gets super fun and personal and powerful. In the center of the temple is where God dwelled. If we want to go all the way back to super, super fun biblical theology, we'll remember back in Genesis, where did God dwell? In the middle of the garden. Then he dwelt in the middle of the tabernacle. Then he's in the middle of the temple. Then Jesus is here and says, I am in the middle of the world. I'm incarnation. I'm in the world, making it full of dignity and purpose and redemption. And then he's going to say, now I'm going to leave That's what he says in the upper room, right? But I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and the temple is now going to be what? Where's the temple going to be after Jesus leaves? In you. And in me. This is the temple. If you read Mark 11, it's, it's a little hard to get sometimes. It's not an easy chapter to comprehend. Essentially what it's saying is, hey, the temple's coming for you. You're going to be the center. I'm going to give you a mission to tell people about Jesus. What's supposed to happen in those courtyards is now it's going to happen through you. Which when you begin to reflect on, as I've had time to do this week, it's a little sobering, because what that means is, oh my gosh, I bet I got courtyards that are busy and noisy I bet I got bustling going on so people don't know I'm living out of a life of prayer. I might have people that I want purged from my temple courtyard too. Maybe you go to this high school and you're like, I don't want that high schooler in my courtyard. Maybe the rich or the poor. Maybe that ethnicity. Remember, it's the courtyard of the Gentile. Maybe that annoying neighbor or coworker or sibling. Maybe that other church down the street, darn Baptists or Presbyterians, maybe people who vote that way, I vote this way. They could, they could be outside the courtyard, Jesus. They could be on the Mount of Olives and buy themselves a dove, but oh my gosh, they cannot be in my temple. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If the temple, this temple is to die, and it's gonna die, it's gonna be torn down, holy holies in a week in this story, and the entire city and temple in 70 AD, then the new temple will be both Jesus and then us and this body as a kingdom. It's God's people. And it begs this great question what does it look like to keep our courtyards available for both prayer and for others instead of being cluttered with even legitimate things like buying doves and selling them was legitimate, but maybe aren't supposed to be given pride of place in our own lives? So that's the temple. I want you to think about the temple. Maybe this week, chew on this a bit, go back and read this chapter. The second thing is the controversy, there's another controversy, and I want you to talk about authority in the Sanhedrin. If you read the last paragraph in this chapter, you see the leaders gather up, the Sanhedrin come. The Sanhedrin are the 71 leaders of Israel. They're the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And they've seen what Jesus is doing and they're hearing his teaching, and they're watching the crowd getting fired up. And they're like, no, nah, I don't feel great about this. They're scared. So they come and they ask this great question. By whose authority do you do this? You get other remnants of this in other Gospels, right? Like, give me a sign. Give us another sign. But I would contend that the real question isn't that question. It's not about authority. I don't think that's really what they're asking. I think the deeper question underneath is, can we trust you and surrender to you and what you're demanding of us? Because think about it. When do you... Ask this question of other institutions or people. When do you need to be convinced of authority? Who are you to say? Anybody ever felt that or said that? It's the same question. What you're asking is by whose authority? You're cool and more sophisticated than the Sanhedrin, so you don't need to do it that way. I have very complicated teeth. It, it would take a whole nother sermon to do it all this, that, cavities, non-enamel, all this stuff. I've had lots of root canals. And I found out a couple weeks ago that I had a root canal about 10 years ago that wasn't done correctly, which is just another challenge. I mean, I got a whole book. I was just like, oh, of course, why not? And I had had three different dental specialists pointing to me in the slide. I'm really good at the slide now. Say, here's your canal. They didn't get here. That's the infection that you're feeling. And so we can try X, but it might not work. It's so complicated, they wanna make sure I know I'm not gonna sue them or go crazy. I'm like, I know, it's my, I know it's complicated, it's my mouth. So I found a guy that I like this week and he's proposing this whole thing and we're kinda of navigating, he's like, are you okay? Because if we do this, we have to yank the tooth and blah, 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 and I'm like, yeah, I think so. So I'm setting up this schedule midweek that I had it on Friday and I look and I'm, I'm real, what I'm asking in my head is by whose authority am I about to let this guy stick sharp things in my mouth. Because I got him a, a recommendation, but I don't know him. And I look, and on his wall, he's got two like certificates of grad, diplomas from two really great schools. And I go, okay. He went there for dental school. I'm okay. By whose authority will I let him stick me in the mouth? I'm, these guys. Because what I said to my wife was, well, even if he got C's, At those schools, maybe he's like the mid-tier dentist and Adonis. But here, he at least got in, and that's great, right? Because the question really wasn't about authority. It was about trust. It was about keeping him at bay until I was ready to let him stick me with sharp things. And that's what the Sanhedrin are doing. By whose authority, Jesus, should we trust you? Because what we really are is not interested in authority. We're really interested in trust and losing our power and surrendering ourselves to you. And oh my gosh, again, doesn't that make it personal and powerful to read this? Because you and I ask this question of Jesus all the time. By whose authority, Jesus? Who do you think you are, Jesus? To, To poke around in the courtyard of my temple, right, what I worship, who I keep at a distance from you or don't consider, Or the noise of my life that perhaps is even with good things, but drowns out opportunities to love my neighbor. Or maybe the deepest longings in my courtyard. I like to just tend my deepest longings. don't really want you to interfere with them. I know they're not met, and I'd rather drown them out on my own. Thank you. And the reality is, not only are you and I the temple by God's great gift, but you and I are also our own little Sanhedrins, aren't we? We walk around and we say to Jesus, Yeah... By whose authority should I trust you? Because I like Jesus more when he's out in Jericho healing blind people. That's great. Blind people need to see. I got no problem with that. I'd like to have blind people in my temple courtyard. But I'd like to be able to, Jesus to kind of keep them out there to bring them in. I don't really want them getting up in my grill about how I pay my taxes or run my business or flirt with somebody at work or love my kids. I mean, who gave Jesus authority over my life? I mean, he didn't even ride in on a horse, he rode in on a donkey, right? And again, that's, that's all of us, right? It's me and it's you. And, and here's what we're given in this chapter. You are a, a temple of the Lord. When Paul the Jewish scholar wrote that to the church at Corinth. It must have blown the heads off of people. What are you saying that I'm in the temple? That, that God, the God of the Old Testament lives in me? That's you too. And the temptation is to be the Sanhedrin and to grill Jesus. So you'll come back. Can you do a paper on that and come back and try to present that to me? Instead I'll go, okay, Jesus, I like the blind man again, Bartimaeus, I think, is the frame for this chapter because he's looking at you and me going, I'm blind and I got it. What are you waiting for? Look what he did. I can see. He gets up from Jericho and follows Jesus to Jerusalem. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, heal me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you uh, for Peter sharing with Mark all this story, for what it was like for him, for his honesty and candor, and just the stunningness of this chapter. And I, I know I cannot fathom just what it means that you make my life and with you a temple unto you. But I know that I, every week, would prefer to have some Sanhedrin just sort of screening what you're allowed to cover in my life what courtyards I want to keep for myself or who I want let in or not in that maybe is too big for my arms but is way smaller than your broad arms are for who you want to love. But we do sing, even as we pray again in our hearts, the line from Wendell Kimbrough's song, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever and we thank you that you are patient with us. We also pray that this community would be your temple and would welcome Jew and Gentile, into its courtyards and into our lives and that people would see what it means to be transformed by you. In your name, amen.